Well, if you look in your bulletins, <clears throat> you'll see that the title of this sermon is called Alive in Christ in Assured Life. <clears throat> Alive in Christ in Assured Life. And if you're f- familiar with the current day situation, what's going on with the persecuted church, you know that this is kind of a strange thing to be talking about. Is there really assurance? When you think of the 21 Egyptian Christians who lost their life on the coast of Libya. We can think of, I believe her name is Kayla Mueller, who was serving at a non-profit organization in Syria. Lost her life. You can think of the gal that we just prayed for in Uganda, Seita Nagaga. Is there assurance in the faith for these folks? For us, for Christians. Our passage actually deals with this situation and we see here that Paul is undergoing persecution persecution that many of us don't know not only that but the people I mean if Paul is being persecuted for uh, his faith physically we see that the Colossians are being persecuted for their faith in terms of doctrine so they're kind of you know Paul's being assaulted physically and the Colossian church is being assaulted doctrinally and Paul addresses this and he wants the church to know that you can have Assurance through Christ and his cross alone. Our passage is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24, and we go through chapter 2, verse 5. As you turn there, I'll give you a bit of the background. You know, we're walking through this letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Coloss, which is in modern day Turkey. And again, the church was under theological attack, and Paul is responding to that with this very letter. He himself experiences physical attack and the church experiences doctrinal attack. And Paul knew the Christians he wrote to were facing various challenges. And the folks in some folks in the church, the Christians were saying that they're looking at their Christian life and saying, oh, yes, you know, I know that you worship this Jesus and everything. But the so-called life you have in Christ, the so-called full life. No, it's not really a full life. What you need to do is add other things to your Christian life, and then you can live the full life. So Paul responds, fighting for their assurance in the faith, reminding them of security that they have in salvation. Colossians 1.24-2.5, I'll read that now. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Can I get another stand? So as we discuss how the Christian life is an assured life, let's look first at how Paul fights for the church. How, How encouraging is it, right, for there to be other people who are fighting for our faith? As mentioned, the church's stability and unity was being threatened by these false teachers. So go ahead and look there in 2 4. This is why Paul had to write the letter. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So if you if we were to turn through if we were to read through the letter, we would see that these false teachers are saying, Yeah, you know, okay, that 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 full life that you claim to have in Jesus Christ, it's actually lacking. What you need is to also worship the angels. The other things that you need is stuff like asceticism. You know, so live a very, very mere life of self denial in such a way. Um, that denies that everything God has given us is good. And so this is what the false teachers are kind of heaping on the Colossians, and they are probably claiming to be Christians. So if the threat is the false teachers, the response, the God-given response for the church's security or assurance is Paul, part of it. So Paul here, he is the church's godsend. He's like the cavalry support, you know, riding on the horse to save the day. But not ultimately in himself. It's what he stands for. What he labors for. So in order to establish and stabilize the foundation of the church, God sends Paul and all the other apostles to lay the foundation of the church. That's why uh, God had given the apostles to lay the foundation that we now stand on 2,000 years later. So we're beneficiaries of Paul's labor and all the apostles' labor. So when we read this, we should not only read that Paul was just laboring for the Colossians' faith. It's very clear that it was to the church at large. But we should see ourselves as beneficiaries of this God-given support here in the Apostle Paul. Paul is aware of this apostolic role there in Colossians 1.25. He says there, Regarding the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So there he says that he is a minister. That word there is is deacon or servant. It can be broadly translated as servant. He's not thinking that he is a deacon of the church as in an official capacity. He's thinking I'm a servant of the church at large and in a very general capacity there. He's a minister, a servant of the church, particularly as a steward. It says there in 125, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. So then we can ask, well, what is Paul stewarding? What does a minister steward? What does a pastor steward? Uh, Two things. Number one is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we're going to get to. 
He's a steward of the gospel. And then secondly, he's a steward of the very people that God has given him, the church. So he stewards these types of things and his charge is by the authority of God himself. So God has in mind to build a church and at this point in time, the church is still in its very early, early stages and God knows that he's going to build the church, which First Baptist is a part of. And he says, I therefore, I'm going to give you apostles, ministers of the gospel, stewards to lay this great foundation by my very own authority. I mean, this is a fantastic summary of what every pastor uh, should understand themselves to be. A minister according to the stewardship from God. So you have God giving this man the stewardship, making him a minister, and it is for something. For you. It is from God for you. And we are to bring forth, make the word of God fully known, it says. We're going to explain that a little bit later. But here it is for the church, but not just the Colossian church here. Amazingly, it is we are included in that, as well as uh, every church that will ever be. So look there in 2.1. He says, therefore, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, the Colossian church, but then not only that, but all the churches in Laodicea. But then not only that, it's for all who have not seen me face to face. So here he's laboring for the church that, that uh, doesn't even know him. And I think included in that is all the churches that will come. But this labor involves suffering. Remember Paul here is in jail, so turn on a 4.8. Sorry, 4.18. He closes off the letter and he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. He is imprisoned for his faith, that is sure. But we got to keep in mind here that he is imprisoned for the universal church's faith. For everyone's faith. And yet, and he is secure, right? He's not talk, He actually doesn't bring up the fact that he's in jail hardly at all in terms of wanting empathy or something like that from the church. He just simply notes it. He just, he just simply notes that he's under persecution. But then he, he deals very gently and very clearly with the fact that they are under doctrinal assault. It's very interesting the way he does. I mean, he's so secure in his own faith that he doesn't even need to really bring it up. And when he does bring it up, he rejoices in the ways in which he is persecuted for the faith. It's a very, it's a very different understanding than many of us today might have if we were under that same persecution. So the stuff that's going around with, in the world today with the church, I mean, just imagine if you were in that situation, how your own hearts would feel. I assume many of us would, would at the very least wonder, would I really claim the faith in the midst of persecution? If my store is at stake, if the government is shutting me down in all of my living, if my life is in jeopardy. But Paul here, he is so secure. He is so assured in his faith. He's wi- he willingly suffers because he's so secure in Christ. So much so, it says there in one twenty four, he rejoices in his sufferings. Look there in one twenty four. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So there you get that you get the fact that he's laboring for the church. 
And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So even in the midst of physical persecution, the Christian life is still a secure life, still an assured life, because it is a life lived in Christ. It's deeply relevant for today, and we're going to see why a little bit later. But in terms of Paul's suffering, it was something that the Lord had appointed for him. For those of you who don't know, Paul was once named Saul, and he was a persecutor of the church. And he went went around with basically arrest warrants for other Christians, wanting to drag them off and, and haul them to jail. And he was approving of this murder, it says in the book of Acts. And then when he becomes a Christian, Christ appears to him on the road when he's, when he's uh, basically galloping to go arrest more people. Christ appears to him. He gets knocked off of his horse. And then Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And eventually God tells, Jesus tells uh, Saul to go meet this other man who would go and tell him the truths about the gospel. And in that occurrence, um, Jesus tells him how much he would suffer for the sake of his name. So this suffering here is appointed. But some suffering is not just reserved for the apostles. According to scripture, some suffering is something every Christian ought to expect. It doesn't mean that every Christian here will experience suffering, but it is something that all must expect. And this is suffering that I don't really know. I mean, there, there have been times when I have been made fun of, I've been mocked for my faith, like in high school. Uh, regularly, I was mocked. I mean, some of my closest friends at that point in time, one of them was a Buddhist, another one was a Pakistani Muslim, uh, another one was an Indian Hindu, another one was an Iranian Zoroastrian. It, it, we just grew up, this is in Irvine, uh, we just grew up in a very international place, and regularly, people would mock me for the faith. Another time, I was sharing the gospel with one of my friends, and he came from a very difficult background, and had a lot of anger, and I was talking to him how hope could be had in Jesus Christ, and he basically lit off a string of profanities, cocked his gun, shoved it in my face, and said, if you don't shut up, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. And he this is the kind of guy who shot his VCR the, the week before because he got so ticked off at it. Uh, so you might, you might consider that some degree of persecution, but in light of what Paul's experiencing, or in light of what this Ugandan gal's experiencing, in light of what the Egyptian Christians are experiencing, this is, this is no persecution. But yet, this persecution ought to be expected of all of us. Acts 14.22 says there that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's just stated fact. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 3, Paul encourages the suffering believers, they're already suffering for the faith, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, that this being suffering. And the reality is is that the the fact that these sufferings go on is a mark. They're all indicators of the fact that the end is near. They're all indicators of the fact that the end is near. Listen to Matthew 24, verses 5 to 8. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. Right? That, that, that happens today. I mean, there are people out there today who claim to be the Messiah. And they will lead many astray. And we know that that's being true. That's true. A lot of people are being led astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Certainly that's going on. 
See that you are not alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he says. For this must take place, not might, but must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. In the letter to the Colossians, Paul is very aware of Christ's return. And he he knows that he lives in this end, the last days. So he's concerned, right, about presenting the church to be holy and blameless before Christ at his coming. He says that in 122. In 24, 124, he mentions sufferings and afflictions, those very things that mark the, the last days. In verse 26, he mentions that God's mystery has been made known. What was previously concealed has now been revealed, a marker of the last days. As, Paul's cho- as Paul is the chosen one of God to bring that gospel to the ends of the earth, he knows very clearly that the end is near. As Jesus says in Matthew 24:14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's the mentality that Paul lives with. The end is near. And so he simply knows that this suffering must take place, not only upon him, but also upon the church. So it happens on Christ, it happens on Christ's apostles, and it will happen upon the church. But isn't that so encouraging to hear Paul talk about how he rejoices in his sufferings for the church, for the sake of Christ's body? While he knows Christians will suffer, he desires to suffer for their sake. That's what, that's what the text says. It almost says that he wants to alleviate whatever suffering he can in order that they would sail safely to heaven and he would bear the allotted amount of suffering that Christ had determined would take place upon his people. I mean, that's, that's difficult. This is what he means here when he says in verse 124, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, the church. So it's not that Jesus' atonement is uh, incomplete or insufficient, as if he didn't die, and so Paul here is now dying, uh, suffering an atonement just like Jesus. That's not what he's saying. Christ's work is done, it is completed. He wins salvation for his church. But here, Paul means that he fills up the allotted portion of suffering. He's trying to, he wants to, for the church. He, He fills it up. What is of Christ's affliction. The afflictions that fall on Christ. The afflictions that are to fall on the church as well. So he does this all on behalf of the church. 125. His suffering is. His stewardship is given to him for you. 124. It is for your sake. It is for the sake of the body. This is a perfect summary. Of. What a pastor is to see himself. I mean isn't it amazing that. Paul's assurance as a Christian is never determined by circumstance. That is incredible. So he can face physical persecution for his faith, but it doesn't make him doubt. It doesn't make him stop. In fact, it makes him continue in the ministry. I know the church will suffer, so I'll suffer all the more for you. But again, this type of suffering 
as a display of love for the church. That's not to mark only the apostles. It marks the church, right? It's, to, it's supposed to mark us. So 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's all of us here. Laying down our lives for one another in that each other's faith would be assured, rooted in the security that is found in Christ alone. So obviously we should be asking ourselves like, what what does my faith actually look like in terms of how it is that I labor for my brothers and sisters in the faith? Am I willing to bear suffering for brothers and sisters here in this church? I mean, some of us aren't even willing to go wake up 30 minutes early to give somebody a ride or if somebody asks us, you know, we might turn over in laziness and think, oh man, I got to drive extra eight miles. It cost me an extra one dollar. Paul here, he's giving his life. He rejoices in his sufferings for your sake, for the church, for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to God that I would give it to you, give the word of God to you. So what is your what is your suffering look like for one another? The little suffering that God has called you to, to display your love to people around here. Well, if Paul has a stewardship from God and for the church, what exactly is he supposed to do? From God, for the church. Go back to verse 125 here. Minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, here's the point, to make the word of God fully known. To make the word of God fully known. And and as he explains this, he's going to go back to the fact that security has been already won. If you guys want to be assured in your faith, whether you're suffering physical persecution or whether you're suffering doctrinal persecution, he says, look, your, your salvation is secure. You don't need to worship angels or add anything else to your salvation. It's already been won for you. This is point number two. Security is won for the church. Point one was Paul fights for the church. Point number two, security is won for the church. Here he's supposed to be making it fully known. What does it mean to, to make the word of God fully known? Well, it's explained in 26. It says the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, When he says mystery there, it's repeated a number of times. And in his other letters, like Ephesians, for example, When he says mystery, do not think uh, something that will never be known. That's not what you're supposed to think of when you think of the mystery. Here, mystery is talking about something that had been concealed but has now been revealed. It's something clearly displayed that Paul here is to go around talking about. So in the Old Testament, God had told the people, the told, or sorry, God had told the people that the Gentiles, like no other time before would be brought into salvation in great numbers. Great numbers. And that this good news of salvation would be preached to the ends of the earth. So what is prophesied in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ. Uh, One theologian said that the Old Testament um, is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Basically, the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled and clarified in the New Testament. In the arrival, specifically, of Jesus Christ, who fulfills all of these prophecies. And the Colossians were witness to this revelation. 
They were the very witnesses of this great and marvelous mysteries, and they were indeed partakers of salvation. They too could share in the riches of the glory of this majesty that is Christ in you. That's assurance, right? Forget the worship of the angels. Forget this life of asceticism where you deny that everything that God has given us is good. How does that give you assurance that Christ is among you? Christ walked among the Gentiles. That's one way that we can understand Christ in you. Christ is among them as a people. We also can understand this Christ in you in a way that Christ indwells you. Right? That's assurance. Christ not only walks among you, he already makes it evident that his salvation is clear and available to everybody who repents and believes, but then he also indwells you so that you know personally that hope of assurance that comes only through the blood of his cross. That's why he calls it the hope of glory. Christ lives amongst his people, and so the Colossians share in the hope that comes from Christ, the hope of glory, as he also indwells his people. False teachers are making it hard for the, for the Colossian Christians, aren't they? They're saying, no, you know, this preeminent Christ that you say that you worship, the one who is before all things, the one who through whom everything is created, the one for whom everything is created, the one who is before all things, the one who sustains everything, the one to whom he receives all great and, and glory of the universe. Yeah, it looks like he's not all that great. After all, you need to worship angels. And Paul says, don't! Christ is in you, he is among you, and he indwells you so that if you hope in him, you share in that hope of glory. It's interesting here that Paul knows, it seems, that Christ suffers, and the Christians suffer in that suffering. He's filling up Christ's afflictions. But then on the flip side, because Christ suffers on the cross and then is raised from the dead, he then enters into glory, so the Christians enter into that same glory. We share in the suffering, we share in the glory. And so he points us to them, or to Christ, the hope of glory. So if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, it's amazing here that salvation is so plain, it's so simple, right? And it's it's the human's tendency to add stuff to salvation. No, you really do need to do enough good works to balance out the bad, and then, at that point in time, then you're saved. Paul says, no! You turn over to uh, first, Col- uh, not first Colossians, turn over to Colossians chapter 1. You look there in verse 13. He says, he has delivered, past tense, for folks who are tempted to, oh, I gotta live a certain way, I gotta follow certain laws, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. He says, He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us past time into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have, present tense, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's so clear. Salvation is all about what God does. He sends His Son to die on the cross for sinners, the very people, God's children, who had rebelled against Him. He lives the perfect life for us. He dies the death that we should have died. He dies for us. He bears the wrath and punishment that we rightly deserved. He's raised for the dead for us, for our justification. He intercedes for us. All of salvation goes to the glory of Jesus Christ. He is the preeminent one, the supreme one, the one to whom all glory is due. It's so simple. Turn from your sins and believe 
on Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the call to salvation there. Turn from your sins and believe on Christ. And if you have not done that, know that salvation is that clear and that simple. Repent of your sins and you will be saved, forgiven, justified, made right, adopted into his family, delivered out of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. The hope of glory. How encouraging is that for these Christians who are under doctrinal attack? And how awesome is it that Paul, as the example, can say he rejoices in his sufferings knowing that he shares that same hope of glory. The suffering here on earth is momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come, he says. This is what Paul labored for. The security of the church by pointing them back to the security already won for them in the gospel that actually saves. doesn't make salvation possible. It makes salvation claimed, definite, secured. And so it's that, that that the people can be assured of. And this brings us to point number three. Point number one, Paul fights for the church. Point number two, there we looked at security is already won for the church through the gospel. And then point number three, there is assurance that comes from this security. There is assurance that comes from this security. So there's a difference between security and assurance. Although they are the two sides of the same perseverance coin. Or salvation. So we have security, that's an objective fact. Christ actually wins salvation on the cross. He dies for his people. Salvation is one. On the other hand, we got the assurance of that fact. It's kind of like the convictions, living out your life in convictions based on reality. So assurance, on the other hand, is subjective. If security is objective, that is historical work of Jesus who dies on the cross, assurance is subjective. So if you've ever asked the question, like, am I really saved? Maybe you're battling with your own sin again and you ask the question, you know, am I really saved? That's an assurance question. In other words, if you have repented and believed and your life is bearing fruit, generally speaking, towards you know, a good trajectory of holiness, Christ-likeness, asking the question of I don't feel saved, am I really saved, uh, is most likely an assurance question. So at times our assurance can be strong, but at times our assurance can be weak. I mean, there's, you, there's typically in every church someone who really wrestles with the assurance question. But even if you are wrestling with that assurance question, am I really saved? That is a really good question to ask and is actually great fruit that says, most likely, that you are a real believer. Because what non-believer would ask that genuine question? Am I really following Jesus? How do I follow Jesus more in the word? Typically the people who are asking those questions, they really love Jesus. And in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, he turns to this aspect of assurance. If the first section dealt with security, objective reality, Christ to the Gentiles, salvation, the beginning of chapter 2 deals with assurance. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And the entire universal church that, is the purpose, their hearts may be encouraged. I want you to know how much I struggle for you in order that you would be encouraged. How are they to be encouraged? Well, being knit together, that is instructed, here this word means instructed, in love, to reach full assurance. So in laboring for them, Paul expects their hearts really to latch on to uh, not an emotional assurance, interestingly enough, 
but an assurance based in truth, in reality, historical reality, the truths of the gospel. Assurance of understanding and knowledge, she says, of the gospel truths. The Colossians needed this assurance. In that culture, you know, again, they were tempted to add other things to the gospel, worshiping angels, living the ascetic life. But for us today, our temptation is slightly different. Maybe it's to remove certain things from the gospel. Maybe we remove the supernatural from the gospel and say, therefore, that that scripture is a man-made book. Paul comes in and says, no, I want you to believe the truth, be rooted in the truth, the historical realities of the gospel. Um, And Paul here, he's holding out himself as, as an encouragement, isn't he? I want you to know how much I struggle for you in order that you would be encouraged. And there's a couple different ways that we can be encouraged or a couple ways in which we find that we might need assurance. Um, and let's say we look at people who are suffering and then we place ourselves in their position and we kind of wonder, oh, I is what I'm really believing worth that? But it's interesting that when we look at the suffering in itself, like Paul suffering, rejoicing for the sake, the conflict that he has for the church, it's in those examples that actually we gain encouragement because they are standing for the faith, right? They're taking a stand for what they know is good, right, and godly based in the truth. Here's, here's one example. Um, there's been a florist, uh, I believe the state is Washington. Yeah, Washington State. There's this florist uh, who is a Christian, and her name is Baronel Stutzman. And she's a florist being sued by the state attorney general for refusing to participate in a gay wedding. Now, she sells flowers to homosexuals. She employs folks from the LGBT community. So she's happy to work with them, happy to, to, uh, uh, to sell people flowers. But when it comes to a gay wedding... She said, oh, no, sorry, I can't do this because I am in a relationship with Jesus. And the Bible says, um, the Bible says clearly that it's sinful and I therefore can't participate in this. Here's some other florist numbers that you can talk to. And she had been serving this particular customer for nine years and they were friends. And uh, the person's partner brought a lawsuit. So now the attorney general is trying to compel her to ignore her Christian faith and to participate in gay weddings. Now get this. Here's the fallout for her. If she refuses, he is threatening the full coercive power of the state to force her to do it. She stands to lose everything, her home, her savings, her business, her livelihood, if she does not comply. And this is just coming straight from... uh, Somebody who works at a seminary, and this is his blog post that he wrote. He wrote an article at CNN explaining the situation, and he writes it concluding that article, and he says, Baron L. Stutzman's case is nothing less than an egregious violation of our first freedom. It is Caesar saying, conscience be damned. Submit to the new sexual orthodoxy or risk losing everything. Now that actually is something that we face. We might not face being beheaded off of the coast of California, but we face this kind of happenings. He goes on and says, this is not tolerance. This is injustice that flies in the face of this nation's laws and traditions. And if this kind of thing can be done to a 70 70 year old grandmother running a small flower shop in rural Washington state, then it can be done to you. No one's conscience is safe 
if this precedent becomes the norm, and it seems to be becoming the norm. So what happened is that Stutzman released a statement through her legal team. And uh, he writes, Late yesterday, after news began to spread that a 70-year-old grandmother was being threatened with financial ruin, the the Attorney General proposed a settlement that offered a small fine. A small fine for you guys. Imagine you being in her position. I fine you a small little bit in exchange for Mrs. Stutzman's agreeing to admit wrongdoing and to violate her conscience going forward. So the legal team, they put out this statement. Rather than accepting the nominal fine and the surrender of principles, that is truth on which the Christian life is built upon, she decided to risk everything. What is it like to risk everything at 70 years old? You're very living. This is, these are her words. Thank you for reaching out and making an offer to settle your case against me. As you imagine, it has been mentally and emotionally exhausting to be at the center of this controversy for nearly two years. I never imagined that using my God-given talents and abilities and doing what I love to do for over three decades would become illegal. Our state would be a better place if we respected each other's differences and our leaders protected the freedom to, to have those differences. Since 2012, same-sex couples all over the state have been free to act on their beliefs about marriage. But because I follow the Bible's teaching that marriage is the union of one man and one woman, I am no longer free to act on my beliefs. Your offer reveals that you do not really understand me or what this conflict is all about. It's about, it's, it's about freedom, not money. I certainly don't relish the idea of losing my business, my home, and everything else that your lawsuit's lawsuit threatens to make it from my family. But my freedom to honor God in doing what I do best is more important. Washington's Constitution guarantees us freedom from conscience in all matters of religious sentiment. I cannot sell that precious freedom. You are asking me to walk in the, in the way of a very well-known betrayer, one who sold something of infinite worth for 30 pieces of silver. That is something I will not do. I pray you reconsider your position. I kindly, reserve, I kindly served Rob, that's the man, for nearly a decade and would gladly continue to do so. I truly want, to be, want the best for my friend. I've also employed and served many members from the LGBT community. And I will continue to do so regardless of what happens with this case. You choose to attack my faith and pursue this not simply as a matter of law, but to threaten my very means of working, eating, and having a home. If you are serious about clarifying the law, then I urge you to drop your claims against my home, business, and other assets and pursue the legal claims through the appeal process. Thanks again for writing, and I hope you will consider my offer. You see the courage here. Her willingness to stand for something that other people are attacking. And we're supposed to look at her example along with the other martyrs that have been martyred within the last month. And be encouraged and stimulated in the faith as they continue following Jesus Christ in the ways that he calls us. That's, what's Paul, that's what Paul's doing. And so he encourages the believers. I want you to know the conflict that I have for you. So that you would be encouraged and have assurance in truth. There's other ways that we can be assured in the faith. There are ways that I need assurance in truth. So what this looks like, I mean, there are days, not often, I'd probably say like once every three years, 
um, where I wake up thinking, like, is this legit, this dude who got up from the dead? This guy who says he's going to return? And I actually think, like, oh, is this legitimate? And I've done it enough, so, you know, if I've been a Christian, let's say, let's just say for the last 10 years, you know, it happens three times. And I wrestle with it. And I've done it enough to know how to preach myself the gospel truths, the very same truths that Paul is preaching. So I take them and I preach them to myself. And I say, okay, was there a Jesus? Yes, there was a Jesus. Non-Christians write about Jesus. Historians. Christians write about Jesus. Great. Of course, Christians, we believe in the Bible. What, do, what then do I make of the Bible? Is the Bible authoritative? Is it trustworthy? Well, then I go pour myself into learning about the Bible's transmission process and how the copyists of Scripture actually protected its content and how amazing it is. And not only that, but having read it and having studied it, it is really clear that internally the document is reliable and trustworthy and it's consistent. It's written over 1,500 years with a number of different authors. And it pushes forward one story, salvation in Jesus Christ alone. So then the question is, do I believe the scriptures? Then the, then the answer is, yes, I do. And what do the scriptures say about Jesus? He is the son of God come in the flesh. And even if one finds there to be difficult things to believe in it, how wonderful is it that the word of God is the word of God and we can then submit ourselves to it? So there are times when I need to be assured in truth, just like I'm sure there are times when you need to be assured in truth, just like there were times when the Colossians need to be assured of the truth. Different circumstances, yes, but really we all need that same assurance here. Though the Colossian Christians did not have the entire Bible, God was calling them to submit to his truth in the same way. That faith and worship of the supreme Christ is enough, Paul says. Look there in verse, uh, verse 3. It says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here he's taking a jab at all those other folks who preach a so-called wisdom, who preach a so-called knowledge. And he says, In Christ there is all treasures of wisdom and and knowledge. And this is a refrain here, right? Did you see that repetition of this theme of riches, this fullness here? 127, you got the riches of his glory. Two, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, the riches of full assurance. Chapter 2, verse 3, in Christ are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is, and being found in him is why one can be jailed and still live a full life. Why one can stare at the face of death and still know without a doubt that there still is peace. Why a 70-year-old grandmother uh, can risk losing everything. Because Christ is enough. And that's what he's holding out to the Colossians. And that's what he holds out to you today. He concludes there in verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith. In Jesus Christ. That's what he labors for. So the question for you is, are you living an assured life? You know, the only way you can live an assured life is you root your assurance, not in yourselves and the stuff that you do, but in Christ Jesus himself, who calls everyone to repent and believe. He is the one, God is the one who qualifies people for salvation. 
He is the one who delivers people out of darkness. He is the one who transfers them into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he is the one to, to whom he gives forgiveness of sins and redemption and reconciliation. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for being a great and marvelous God. And we praise Christ. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for being a powerful Lord in whom alone there is security of salvation. We thank you for the blood of your cross, which brings about, as we looked at earlier, universal pacification. You conquer death, you conquer Satan. And we know, Lord, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at the end that you are indeed Lord. We thank you that it is through the blood of the cross that you work reconciliation. People who were at enmity with you, you pacify, you soften our hearts, and you draw us into your family, calling us your brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray that when tempted to put our assurance in other things, whether it's stuff that we do, the amount, the amount of so-called good deeds, or even how clear our consciences may be, Father, we pray that you would rebuke us and turn us once again to how supreme the cross is and the blood of your Son is. Lord, we pray that you would root our assurance in the cross of Christ and his great work and the person of Christ for our Christian faith. In your name we pray. Amen.